five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. We're in the 21st century. Humans that aren't awake survive in a self-made penitentiary. If you're seeking truth, honesty, integrity, stay away from the polarity. There's only one place to turn to. You can't trust the singularity. I'll be that babe spreading higher consciousness, wisdom, because we ain't no one's test subject, and we ain't no damn victim. Wake up, humanity, before it's too late. If you sit where I'm sitting, we got a checkmate. Question everything, fairy rings, aliens, reptilians, arturians, palladians, dragons, and even our own origins. Psychic babes, we empower humankind. Seek the truth, but don't seek through the mind. This is how we win, go within, stand together. Colors can't divide us, watch our differences unite us. Welcome to Psychic Babes. I am your host, Kirsten Sandifer. Today, I have an amazing guest and friend, Jennifer Zuckerman, on. She is a registered nurse practitioner. She's a third wave microdosing coach, sound healer, end of life doula, and she has over 10 years experience blending traditional with mystical practices. She's a spiritual seeker with a desire to help relate, uh, raise the collective consciousness, and she's passionate about the use of plant medicine, psychedelic integration, education of psychedelics, and the importance of harm reduction. She does one-on-one and group co- coaching, consultation, and helps transition people from using pharmaceutical interventions to a more holistic approach in plant medicine alternatives. As well as being a dear friend of mine, she's an amazing wealth of knowledge and is not afraid to challenge current models of thinking to show that when used responsibly with a competent facilitator, plant medicines can be used to promote transformative life-changing experiences. Lastly, I want to communicate that I don't don't promote the use of illegal or illicit drugs, but I do believe these plant medicines were put on Mother Earth for a reason and not acknowledging their healing qualities and not educating people on the dangers of improper use is causing a lot of disruption in our society and a lot of misunderstanding of both the healing qualities and the potential benefits they have. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. This is fun. I'm so excited to have you on. Um, Can you please tell my audience how you got started down your path of using plant medicines versus the typical Western medical model? Sure. Um, well, I think like a lot of us, it definitely came from uh, younger years of recreational use. Uh, not saying that's good, bad, and different. I think a lot of, of the warriors in the psychedelic space honestly have had a lot of experience in their previous lives doing their experimentation and, you know, seeing what life's all about on the other side and in the other realms. Um <laughs> And then uh, getting a Western medically trained and educated um, first few years as a nurse working with traumatic brain injury patients. And I always like to bring that in because they're on their own psychedelic path as their brains are healing. And it was very interesting to witness and be a part of that. And then decided to go back and continue my education, got my family nurse practitioner, been practicing both in family practice and in um, internal medicine practices and realized that our system is not uh, for me and broken to the point where I feel like I, all I can do is work in the periphery and the way that I feel is more in alignment with our true healing than in the way in the system, like 
plugs us into seeing X amount of patients in a day, a certain amount of time limit based on what appointment they book, and then never giving that more time. And uh, many people on a plethora of different medications, some are warranted and some are necessary. And then there are some that are just being given to treat other side effects from other medications or, um, of course, different mental health issues and never really like diving deep into what's going on in the root cause or underlying issues that that are bringing these physical manifestations of illness or disease um, and never having the space in that platform to really dig in. Because if you came to see me and I did my thing. And we were realizing that you kept, like, there was a cycle of where you were coming in every, this, let's say March of every year, you have this big thing happen to you, or you get this respiratory infection, whatever. And it's really easy to say in Western medicine, oh, it's cold and flu season. Well, no, actually this is like a window in time for you. And this is showing you where your body is, uh, showing you where energy needs to be moved. And like, if it's, talking about the lungs and there's grief and things that are connected to that. And if I were to say that to most of the patients in a typical practice, I'd get looked at, like I had three heads, like a few times people were very open and perceptive, but I did have a few uh, patients like walk out on occasion. Cause I was just like, well, what'd I say? Um, I love that. Like, thank you for having the courage to do that because that's so beautiful in and of itself. Yeah. So yeah, always really just attuned to the spiritual component of healing and health. And also just like what's going on for us always being a seeker since I was very young and knowing that there's a lot um, going on that we don't see and at play. And um, you know, I, I always bring like as much as I can astrology to my like basic knowledge into practice. And I think that's very uh, helpful. You know, there's a whole study on medical uh, astrology and I think that can play a role also when like looking at someone as an individual and seeing where different things maybe are showing up or out of alignment or how that can be like involved in their care. And then of course, with psychedelic, um, my own path was to get myself, I was off antidepressants um, and anxiety meds, uh, sleep aids, I was overusing Adderall because I was trying to like sustain this like 50 to 60 hour a week work week, oh, seeking wow. like 25 to 30 patients a day and then having to catch up with all the charting and the paperwork and the calls and like also feeling like it was my responsibility if we are now connected in your care that like I, I had not yet learned the whole um, martyr being a martyr and like as a nurse like this odd codependent trauma bond that comes with healing. And I don't say that lightly. It's a very uh, deep process. I think a lot of healthcare providers, especially nurses have going on in their way of caring and, and realizing like, I'm not healing anyone. I am helping them heal themselves by guiding them to like alignment to truth of what's going on for them. And uh, that was my own like awakening through my process. And I did start working with psilocybin first and microdosing, well, macrodosing, realizing I had great benefit and then started studying like, microdosing and utilizing that to get off my own medications. And then 
knowing I couldn't really talk about it in practice, um, you know, here and there, I would let it slip out, um, maybe to friends and family members. And then when I cho- chose to just completely step back, um, I could work with people uh, one-on-one and help them and guide them off their medications, not only using psilocybin, but other plant medicine or plant tools that are healers that aren't necessarily considered uh, psychoactive, but, um, you know, finding great success in that. And then that's merged into like helping and consulting in the ketamine space and, and creating what I believe to be the conscious clinics and, and the way of uh, it's, it's no longer serving us the Western medical model. And we're creating this new model of how we practice medicine. And, and I believe that's coming through the psychedelic medical model, because that's going to be the way that we will be having care and healing and these tools in tandem, of course, when we do need certain things with Western medicine, of course, we're going to use what, when we have to, but if we can really like get down to the like basics and get our bodies more in a tune and align, the less we're going to see the need for certain pharmacological interventions. So let's, let's go on that a little bit. Um, let's say somebody comes to you um, with, you know, they're on a plethora of antidepressants. How would you explain to them how to get an alignment? I know it's going to be different depending on each person, but just, you know, as like a general idea for my, you know, my audience, like how do they go about understanding how to become an alignment? Again, it's patient person uh, specific, and it depends like what, how long they've been on a certain medication, which medication um, have they tried to come off before? Have they had success if they've weaned off? What did they use? Um, Typically, I find the withdrawal symptoms can be pretty heavy and severe, also dependent on which medication and the length on the medication. So, and then if they're on multiple, it's like going one at a time. Mm -hmm. I always say, you know, I like to leave sleep meds last because I, you know, sleep is so vital, especially if we're going through so much shifts, shifting that, you know, to give our body and brain rest so that we can combat whatever we're, as, as we're detoxing off certain medications. I, so I always say like, I always leave sleep meds last if that's on the like regimen of their daily use. Um, really just depending on their desire of why they want to come off. And if they have support, um, whether it's with coaching or with therapeutic support, I find like, it's great. I like to form like interdisciplinary teams and I work with other therapists um, or psychiatrists or depending on how that looks, I want to have a whole team approach. And that's where I think the most benefit comes to be quite honest, the more support, the better. Um, So yeah, it just really depends like what someone's seeking and, and making sure like, as you come off these meds, the emotions are going to start to come up and, and show you new things about yourself. And that's normal and healthy, but what tools do we have to work with here? So you can, you know, go through that. And I find some people need a little bit more handholding through the process than others. And that's okay. I mean, that's why we're here and, um, or they have one, you know, other family support that they can use, but some people feel really guilty putting that on their you know, partner or their sibling or their parent that like, if they're going through all these emotional shifts that like they're feeling too needy, which I'm constantly saying like, no, this is just part of the process. And if this is a small window in time, it's well worth it so that you can be more connected in what's going on. Yeah. And especially with the opioid epidemic that's happening. I mean, there are so many alternatives now that we could use if Western medicine would just catch up and um, allow some of these things to happen you know, with the boga and Ibogaine, like, 
you know, I mean, the plethora of stories I've just heard from people who were addicted to heroin and then, you know, did, I mean, how, what kind of stories do you hear like that, that they just do a BOGO one time and they never touch, you know, heroin again. I mean, that's. Yeah. I've heard amazing stories all across the board and, and with different medicines and, and, a, and I always say like, please be transparent when you're going to go use these tools yeah. and like, let your facilitator or practitioner, whomever know what's going on. And the last time, if you are currently using like the last time that you used, because it can get, be very dangerous when you oh, mix yeah. um, and it could be life-threatening. So yeah, I, it gets sticky because it's like this hard area where someone desires to come up, you know, stop using, but they physiologically need it. And then they really want to make this like trip to wherever they're going or whether they're doing it in the United States, which is now a lot more um, prevalent and accessible, I find. So yeah, just, you know, just being fully transparent with those that you trust and the more that you can um, share with whatever practitioner provider that you're working with, even your primary care. I mean, they don't have to condone what you're doing, but like you should, it is your body and what you want to do with it. And they should know. So the more we share, the more we're also pushing the, the society of you know, medical providers to, to do their due diligence and study these tools so that they have better, uh, are better equipped to receive when a patient comes to them and says, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Like I know with, with my journey, I was completely transparent with my family and was very like, I have to be honest about this. And I know in the beginning they were concerned um, because I had had a history 15 years ago. um, I was addicted to opiates and um, nobody knew um, because I was essentially functioning and I got my medicine from a doctor, you know, so I thought I was okay. And then all of a sudden when I didn't have my back pain anymore and I wanted to quit. I was like, oh, what do I do? Um, so, but I felt, you know, I had to be super honest with everybody. And I, I still feel that way because I feel very grateful to the plants for the healing abilities that they've provided me. So, yeah, I think that's that's really important thing to speak about. Um, can we talk a little bit about microdosing and what protocols do you recommend? Um, and what's a typical candidate for you for microdosing? Sure. Um, as we all probably know, or maybe not, there's a few different schools of thought around protocols and there's st- uh, Stamets, Paul Stamets and James Fadiman, but I always speak around intuitive dosing as well. Um, and that's my goal for anyone that is microdosing is to get yourself to a rhythm and place depending on where I'm starting with this person and maybe their experience of microdosing or not microdosing, if they're on medications and coming off because I do work with uh, those in tandem that on a smaller dose of microdose um, when they're coming off SSRIs and um, some mood stabilizers and uh, some other meds, they just help kind of round those edges with the withdrawal symptoms. So um, I do usually depending on where we're at in the front end, especially if they're nearing the lower part of their taper or about to come off, I do four days on three days off sometimes necessary five days on two days off, um, when they're coming off. Then once we have a window of a few weeks off medications, then I'll say like, we can back off a little bit and you can do every other day. You could do one day on two days off, depends how your schedule looks, like what is going on in your life. 
there's probably certain days that are better for one to microdose than others. And then like always making sure that we have those breaks so we don't build a tolerance. Yeah. I think people have this expectation of they're going to be microdosing and at work, like, it's like, no, if you've, it, it should be an imperceptible amount that that's, I think where people get confused. Yeah. And that said, like the call that I had right before this, um, client, she's taking 150 milligrams and, um, said like the first between the half hour after she takes it to the first half hour and a half, she's like, I'm feeling disoriented. I'm like, well, what does that mean? She's like, I'm just really out of it. And I'm like, well, visual changes. She's like slightly. I just feel like, you know, I'm a child of the sixties. I know what this (laughs) stuff feels like, but it's it's a little like, and and then I have more focus, but it's that first like hour, hour and a half. Um, you know, and then I suggested like, you might just have a higher tolerance. Let's take it in half and see where you're at and like gauge. Cause that could just be too high for you where sometimes it that might be a little low for some people, depending. I try to keep everyone under 200 milligrams. Occasionally somebody needs 250. Um, again, it's like, you got to work with it and work with yourself and find that like sweet spot in what works and yeah. doesn't work. And depending on like what strain you're working with and how it works well with you, or maybe there's other ones that you could try to yield better results for yourself. And primarily, do you work with just LSD and psilocybin um, with microdosing? I mainly psilocybin. Um, I can guide somebody with LSD and microdosing as well. Um, I'm more of the natural mm-hmm. realm, but I respect the work with LSD. And it's it, it's interesting because it's like whatever your medicine is for you and whatever works for you, I fully support. Um, so I, I find more uh, my clients are psilocybin, but I can like guide people around, um, LSD and microdosing, or if they want to macrodose, but it's not my medicine. I I found it really interesting. Microdosing in Boga. Um, it seems to play with linear time. And what I mean by that is I had more hours in the day to get things done. Um, and I literally like took one day, all of I blocked out my day to do my taxes and everything. And it, I started at eight and I was finished at 11 and I was like, what's going on? Like this, this doesn't seem possible. And so I started to realize, oh my gosh, I think this is what Evoga is doing. And then hearing about Tim Ferriss, the, that he wrote the, the four day work week. Um, and that's correlated to his microdosing of Evoga. I was like, oh, okay, it makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. So very, very interesting. Um, so um, what now I want to switch gears a little bit, speak about, um, ayahuasca and, and some things like that. And because I know a lot of people are doing retreats now. So what do you think, if anything is problematic, um, with Westerners venturing, you know, to other countries or going, you know, even locally, um, to do you, to, uh, use ayahuasca and what should they be looking for in a retreat center? Because it is important. Yeah. Um, I'll speak around both because we're, I mean, I'm seeing it as well a lot more, whether there's shamans coming up from um, South America and then guiding and leading circles in the U.S., but also there's a lot of people stepping into the space. I do find that there are some really well-trained and and, and experienced and educated And then I also find that some people have like these awakened experiences and believe that they're meant to share this medicine and then go right in and have groups sitting together and they're not equipped to hold the space for what can come up. And, and it can be very, 
unsafe and can be dangerous. Um, so I always, for me, coming from the medical side, like think it's so important to have a proper intake process and to ask certain questions. And, and on that, like an example, um, I'm, I'm in a group of like uh, a consultation group with other therapists in the space. And it was really interesting because I find that like not a lot of the intake forms ask about previous sexual trauma or sexual abuse history. And if you've had those those that in your history, what have you done to work on it? Or are you currently working on it with someone? Because in these circles that people are being put together, if especially if they're um you know both male yeah. and female, yeah, it can be very triggering if something comes up on these medicines, if there isn't the proper support around that or knowledge maybe about that person's history. And also it could be part of like to say an exclusion criteria, but I would def- definitely encourage a person that has had these things in their history to maybe look into doing more one-on-one work first before going into group setting. Um, So proper intake is really important. Um, The experience and knowledge of, of the medicine server and, and their helpers or staff or guardians um, when going down to South America, I would say it's so interesting because like, if you're going in to sit with indigenous or you're going to sit with the Shipibo, like they have their own rituals and traditions and they, they're very well attuned. They've been doing this for thousands of years. So it's like, it's different, but then you bring, you know, in our Western culture, I always say like, we're in the United States. We're not the Shipibo. We like, we don't have that, those same practices, those same tools, the same like belief systems around our health and well-being, And those are layers that we have to kind of take into consideration. So if you are going down to a retreat center, like, do they have any medical staff or is there anybody that's equipped if something happens that you feel supported? Um, you know, I've sat in larger groups and smaller groups. I think there's benefit to both. That said, again, like knowing your history and um, being really like really checking in with yourself. And I think um, ethics is a huge thing to look at. And like, what are these what are the practices of this establishment or group? And what are your own um, beliefs and boundaries when it comes to ethics and your own ways of practicing with someone else and doing these these using these tools in the work. So holding each other accountable. So I'm just as much responsible as the person that I'm working with and to have open dialogue and communication about what that means and, and really having that intention before you ever even open up the space to, to, to take the medicine, whatever you're working with. Yeah. And education and integration, wouldn't you agree? I mean, oh yeah. Prep and integration. That's the whole other thing. Like some of these groups, I do understand that there are some like more traditional um, circles that are happening and they might not provide prep or integration, but that's also one, our, our responsibility as a participant to ensure that we have that set up and like have those tools ready for us when we come back into everyday life. But I do think it, there's great benefit when the medicine collective of whomever you're working with has proper prep and does a few, you know, couple hours, at least beforehand, different, you know, whether it's weekly calls or, you know, and then the prep actually like before you go into medicine and then having, you know, immediate integration circle and then follow-up integration um, sessions, depending on what you're working with and who you're working with is huge. Yeah. That just ensures that you don't have any hiccups, you know, because you can, you can have these amazing experiences um, on ayahuasca that 
seem so real to you and they are to you. They're very real. And you've experienced something that um, many other people might have experienced, but going back and speaking about it to somebody who is not familiar with the medicine, doesn't understand what happens in the space could be very jarring to them and could also scare them thinking that you've lost your mind, you know, and that could have very real consequences. Um, so you know, yeah, for me, yeah integration is very important. Yeah. Safety of the setting too. Like what, where are you sitting? How is that set up? Is there, are you um, contained in a way in the space or are there people monitoring? So if you don't, if someone gets up to walk out, are they, is there somebody there to help them? Um, I just heard a recent story that was quite scary that happened down in South America at a retreat center that Mm -hmm. they were not monitoring the participants and somebody jumped off of a tree and like really injured themselves. So, you know, these are things that happen and we don't, I feel like it's this, like some groups are like, keep it quiet. We don't want to take away from the like potential of these tools becoming legal and all this, but I'm like, no, we need to share both sides mm-hmm. of this so that we understand <laughs> and we learn and we have like higher standards that we have to hold and to, you know, meet so that we can keep practicing and to also put that responsibility on the facilitators. Or if you are bringing like, an indigenous tribe member up to serve medicine, then the, there's also a co-facilitator of someone from this from the States that is there to like help guide and navigate in case something comes up. That's a little bit, not in the traditional setting down in the jungle. Correct. Yeah. Because they have their own ways of doing things and they're amazingly talented, but they're used to, you know, they're, they're used to dealing with the people in their community who understand the medicine they grew up on it. So, you know, they don't have a lot of these situations and that is up to, that's a, that's a beautiful point to make the co-facilitator to handle those aspects um, as well. And there's a lot of places popping up, you know, that are like very dangerous, <laughs> um, you know, and it just, it scares me because I've, I've had clients that have gone and sat in ceremony, um, you know, around here, around LA and come back and just, I mean, completely shattered, um, have broken down and had, you know, almost suicidal type Yes. ideations after that, that I've had to like, I'm not to cry, like walk them through, you know, and kind of redo the experience for them so that you remove the trauma um, response yeah. from that. Re-traumatization, coming back and having suicidal ideation. Um, I know plenty of people in the space that do actually, most of their work is actually receiving people from these like traumatic experiences with medicine, because they're also with like untrained or unequipped individuals that are serving, maybe that so there could be somebody that has really um, been doing this for years and it still happens. I don't know. I, I, it can be a few different things. I don't want a blanket statement, but yes, there's so much popping up and there's so many people that are like called to share medicine and, and, you know, who am I to judge when somebody says they feel really called to to start doing journey work with individuals with, with psilocybin. Okay. Like I'm not going to judge that. And what are you doing on yourself as a practitioner? It's constant work. Like even when I was going over this like code of ethics and there was places for me that I was like, Oh no, I need to check in more with myself. Mm -hmm. I need to do this more regularly. I need to do this before, you know, 
each like major session, not only with the person I'm working with, but like do my own practice around that. So that absolutely, you have to be a neutral vessel as well. And you can't be tied to a specific outcome with the client because you're messing with their experience, if not. And it's, that is so important to me too. It's I'm always checking in with myself and doing work and it's, it's never a destination when you agree. It's like, you're never going to get to this place of perfection, but it's constant work, you know? It's what, what is the, we should be in a neutral place, but Mm -hmm. also what are the underlying motivators? And um, we were just talking about a book called the ethics of care of caring. It's by Kailea Taylor. And she like breaks it down into the motivating factors of people working in the psychedelic space or with psychedelic um, in therapy models. And it's a beautiful book. I'm like just ordered it. I'm going through it, but I um, find that like, there's so much more we can do individually. If we do feel called to work with these tools with individuals and to also hold each other accountable and to, um, you know, maybe even like we were speaking in a group setting where like having uh, like an anonymous, like a a number or an email or something that we can provide in a collective way that the participants feel very safe. If something happens or they, something's not sitting well with them, they have a place that they can go and bring it up so that that's shared with the community in which it's being handled because I think we should be holding every each other accountable in every way possible because we want to keep people safe. And if something, if someone has an experience and we don't know, then like we're doing more harm than good. So let's all like work together. And, um, you know, I'm really hoping that that's like the wave of how this is all shaping up. And I believe it is, it's just, we're little by little collectively doing this and some on a greater scale and then having our local practices and practitioners coming together as well. And it's not really about calling people out. It's about just, yeah, it's just about holding each other accountable. And I think that anybody who's working in this space who really wants to help people knows that and goes into it with that, with that understanding. So, you know, that's an important, that that's really important um, thing to take away as well. Um, How do you approach illness from a holistic fashion versus traditional Western medicine? Um, well, not just physical, you know, there's spiritual, mental, and emotional, and also like looking even at relationship and familial, um, what's going on. So that's a multi-tiered question. (laughs) Um, what is illness and like, what does that mean to someone and what is that in their relationship to self and their body and what's happening? And, um, Well, we've got evidence now, for example, that holding on to specific traumas and stuff will cause physical illness in the body. So, yeah. You know, but sometimes we might see it or recognize it if we're caring for someone or with someone in their care before they recognize it. And it's a, you know, it's sometimes is a dance to to help someone be in in awareness of what's going on in the like root cause. And also sometimes things are very suppressed and they don't know until we start to delayer the onion. And, and then you get more rationale behind certain things that are going on based on history that they might've blocked out, but with work and you can get this with just, you know, traditional therapy, but I find work with the psychedelic and therapeutic model is just a accelerated path to getting to the deeper root causes of what's going on in the physical form or mental. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and it's not, I also have to say preface that it's not for everyone. It, it yeah. isn't because some, some people cannot 
they can't go into that space. I mean, they, they, they can't calm the mind. They won't surrender into it. And it's just a, it's a constant fight. And so that's another thing that's very important, I think, to take into account when you're interviewing somebody for these potential, you know, um, ceremonies and things like that, that you, you look into that. Mm-hmm. And what's previous, what are your previous psychedelic experiences? What work have you already done? Um, you know, digging a little deeper if they've had some tough stuff come up or they've had a bad trip, which like most of us have and mm-hmm. looked at it in that way. And it had been traumatizing. And then once you realize what it really was, then you're like, oh, I just didn't want to like lean into this. And I was resistant and I just like was fighting with ego and there's so many parts to it. But yeah, really having that dialogue. And if someone has never had the experience, you know, really finding more out about their personality and, you know, their curiosity and what they do when things are stress in stressful situations or like how do they handle um stressors in their environments and like what how do they react and you know some people will even verbally say like I'm very controlling I hope you know this is very hard for me to do and you can still do the work you just have to navigate it in a different way yeah well I know like my father um because I work with psilocybin as well. And he came down and the first time we did psilocybin together, it was like this beautiful experience. It was in Utah and Park City and it was just phenomenal. Um, It gave him a little bit of a higher dose this time and he's in a lot of pain. He has a lot of stomach issues that I know are related to, and he'll tell you as well, are related to stuff that he's stuffing down, right? So um, we had this experience when he came out at Christmas time and I had to walk the line between shaman and daughter Um, because he was looking at me going, I'm dying, you know, I'm physically like, I'm going to have a heart attack. And I was like, no, dad, you're not going to die. You know, you're like, this is, and I was like, are you in pain? And he was like, no, I'm not in any pain, but I'm scared. (laughs) And I was like, I mean, it was really, it was tough because I know I was like, if you could just make it through this, you're gonna, you're gonna understand that this pain isn't real. You know, it is, it's real to you and, but it, it, it has some unwinding to do, but um, yeah. So, so that was for me, that was an interesting um, experience and lesson also not to work with family members um, in that space. So leave it to somebody else. Yeah. But um, yeah. So what are some of your favorite books that you recommend to people um, that are interested in psychedelics and studying psychedelics and their efficacy? Sure. Um, I mean, my favorite book, because that really, I, I just love every part of How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Wow. And I, I think he's on like the favorites list of everyone. I It's really digest, easily digestible. It's dense in a great way. Like they cover so many different things and bring it down to like a real life real human, not a science, you know, not a scientist or a physician or psychiatrist, really just like having these experiences as any of us would as lay people just learning around these medicines and then like what they're really doing and then giving us some science, but like in a really, I find easy format. Cause I know it can be challenging sometimes if you're getting thrown all these molecules and receptors and different things. Um, I like also, um, well, anything by Aldous Huxley. Oh, yeah, Doors of the Mind. Uh, and um, there's like another book that I wanted to bring up, and now I'm like drawing a blank. Oh, drug um, use for adults. <laughs> but, yeah, and um, the like psychedelic explorers guide. Oh yeah, I have that too. That yeah, mm-hmm. and then you know you had asked that question, and I was thinking about it. And I was like, well, there's so many other books that we can like wall in tandem doing our work with these tools 
be using to help like explore more sides of us. Like, you know, we all, I don't know if you've read like the body keeps score, which is all oh, about yeah, stored in the body. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of um, tandem work being done with like um, interfamiliar parts work and like systems and like how we bring energy into different parts. We, we connect different parts of selves to different places in our bodies, but also in our lives. And we have these different not personalities, but so in a way and how that like translate. And then we work with these psychedelic tools in a therapeutic model. And it just like kind of expands that and helps the release and connection to, to those things. So, yeah. I don't know if you've heard of site K, but um, I just recently got trained in site K, which is deprogramming the subconscious by using the whole brain approach. And it is phenomenal, but um I combined that with, with psychedelics, um, and that whole approach. And it was like, I mean, it, it, it did things to me that, um, cause you can do it on yourself. It's muscle testing and things like that. But, um, it, it gave me insight to things that I would have nor- normally not been able to get just doing psych K alone. So it's interesting combining some of these practices that are very much just designed to work beautifully all on their own. And then I like to push the boundaries and, you know, sort of uh, mix things up and, and see what happens. So, yeah. yeah. And I think there's a lot more of that, um, you know, that's going to be available to people soon. So it's very, very beautiful stuff. Um, let's, let's switch um, kind of gears. And I want to talk about um, death a little bit. Uh, and this is something people are afraid to address. Um, and I've done some work in hospice and you have as well as you worked as a death doula. So um, I'd like to know, in your opinion, how can psychedelics help people suffering the loss of a loved one and or helping people who are in the last stages of life um, to cross over? Uh, So two parts, the family members that are, well, depending where this individual, if this loved one has already transitioned and has died, then the work with the, you know, the grief work and, and the loss around that family member with, or friend or whomever loved one. Um, I find that the psychedelic, well, for one, if you want just to look at the mood um, enhancement, especially if they're in a more depressive state, but like allowing most emotions to be processed in a, I, I just feel like it's in a much more softer way when things come up and it's not as like debilitating, which is okay. Sometimes we need to like hit the floor and like cry our eyes out and, and, and have this cathartic experience. And it could be many times grief is not a short ride and it's not a short process. And it's, it's, yeah, some, it's this process, the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross psych, you know, that. Yes. Five stages of grief. Yeah. And to also in that, like, I find that the other flip side of that is people wanting to avoid the, those feelings and not give themselves the time and space to grieve and not to ask for that with other, you know, responsibilities that they might have in, in their day-to-day lives. Because when we stuff that, that's, as we have talked about, is just going to bring illness down the road if you don't move that emotion. And um, I understand, like, sometimes people just need to, like, get up and keep doing things and live their lives and, like, not be affected. Um, that said, like really, um, honoring and having reverence for your emotions and feelings during that process. And there's so many different tools that we can work with, um, depending on what we're seeking in our healing and where we are in that, um, you know, psilocybin is great. I also, I mean, ayahuasca is beautiful medicine and, 
and can really connect us with our ancestors and those one those that have um that are not on this physical plane and the energies of about that as well yeah yeah so there's so many different modalities and then just depending you know if they're in a more depressive state or they just want to dig deeper but i find it to be the most beneficial when these things can be done before the loved one Absolutely. Um, transitions. And then the person that is in the, the dying is able to also start to, if they haven't yet done the, any work to like to start to delayer the onion of beliefs or what's holding them back and also address any fears they have around death and dying. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many, all of these tools are so important. I find, um, you know, I've worked with psilocybin. I find, you know, DMT. I do think ketamine is uh, beneficial, but both for mood, but also with pain. And I, I want to see ketamine used in an end of life. Um, it would be yeah. instead of, instead of a benzodiazepine and morphine, like, cause yeah. you're on the clock dosing those things. And then this person is not able to like express and there's, they're not yet like, haven't yet lost consciousness enough to like not be present. They're just severely drugged so that they, which we want our loved ones comfortable, of course, but we can also like, I think we can manage it better and manage, use other tools to help um, instead of just this, like, nor this is like our typical, like way of prescribing and then you're around the clock dosing and, and it's, I don't know. I just feel like having more time with the ones that, unless it's their time to leave this plane, like, but having a little bit more time to, for closure and um, having more of those important conversations that might not have been had because that time wasn't really in front of them. That mortality wasn't staring you at the, in the face. I know from my uncle who passed away from COVID, um, it was uh, in January, um, he, he was in the hospital by himself when he was passing. And um, I sat in meditation and connected with him. And um, I do my practice, which is called conscious dying techniques, where I was trying to explain to him because I, I have this ability when when somebody is um, in the in-between state, I can hear them very clearly um, once they passed on as much. But, um, you know, sometimes I can, but I can hear them very clearly. So I was teaching him from here um, conscious dying techniques to, you know, leave through the crown. Don't don't hold on to the body. Um, and thereby the bereavement, and they've done studies that people who do these conscious dying techniques, the bereavement is much less in the family members that survive it. And um, it was that case with my family. Um, everybody suffered much less bereavement and celebrated his life versus um, mourning it, which mm-hmm. was very powerful. And they don't all agree with those kinds of the things that I do. So I didn't really mention it to anybody, but I knew in my heart that, you know, um, that, and I was just grateful to be able to help that. And, and it was great to see that that worked out that way. So I would like to do more, more work with, um, hospice again, and then doing that just because it's such, it's such transformational work. Yeah. I told myself I moved to Austin recently, a few months ago. And I, I, once I got settled, my goal is to volunteer. There's a place here, I believe it's called Christopher house. I'm going to look into it, but yeah, I'm like, I need to be more involved and volunteering at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about your, um, your door acronym and how you use that. Cause I thought that was really interesting. I was listening to one of your YouTube videos. Before 
So when I had a really clear understanding of why AI was called to this, I was sitting on my couch clear as day. I believe it was like in fall or like August, 2018. Mm -hmm. There was a church mouse sitting there and I got a complete message. Like you need to work with death and you need to work with psychedelics. And I was like, okay. Um, And started to like, understand I've had this connection with death and and process it in a different way and how it's shown up in my life and with those that I've worked with and the, just all of it. And then having this like aha moment that, Oh, okay, this is something I need to look at going into, um, you know, exploring the role of an end of life doula and then realizing like we're dying every day, you know, our death of our belief systems of relationships, of jobs, of things that are no longer serving us. And like even our skin cells, you know, they flake off every day and die. So not just like the physical death, but all the things that we go through. And, um, so I just came up with a, an, a, acronym, uh, death observation, acceptance and rebirth. And meaning, you know, observing what's happening when we die, not just physically, but when we have a death and what's going on in this big, we'll use a big transition or a big change and observing it and really witnessing that and, and being the observer and understanding in, in a really compassionate way. And then acceptance of what is transpired and transmuted. And then, um, being reborn into whatever newness and new possibility and new experience of us that we get to be. Both and I love, I love when I get to have like the spiritual death on medicine because it feels like such a, Oh, I go home and then you get to come back and you're so grateful and you have this gratitude for just the beauty and you look at everything in a different way. It's like a child, you know, all over again. And it's like, Wow. And it doesn't happen very often, you know, but it's, it's, it's one of those things. And when it does, you're just like profoundly grateful to the medicine for giving that to you because it really, yeah, it, it just shows you to appreciate what you have, you know? Yeah. So we're always going through doors. They're always open. Exactly. Yeah. Our choice to go through them and see what's on the other side and, you know, just always going through some sort of a transition or change, whether it's in this physical vessel or ending of this physical vessel and into the ethers and energetics and fractals of who we are. And I want to ask you something, because this has always been on my mind and I have a very distinct perception on it, but I want to hear what yours is. So Tyler Henry is very accomplished in his own right with what he does, mm-hmm. but do you think he's actually connecting to the dead or do you think he's, he's connecting to the conscious collective memory of the dead? I like this question. Um, uh, I, you know, people get mad at me, like people get no, mad no, at me. This has changed. Me. This has changed so much with, I mean, I, I go through different shifts of like my questioning around, like, because as you start to work with psychedelics and you understand that, like, we are the collective, I am you, you're me, we are everything. There is no, just us like Mm -hmm. there. So I do think it could be the collective. Um, yeah, I, I believe that to be true. In my younger years, I believe that we were like completely communicating with that family member or that. And I do think that there is some possibility, but there is like this it's energy. Right. And there is no, and time, you know, there is no time and space. So whatever you can tap into, it can also be on a different like timeline. Um, But I just got the, I don't know when I watched him, I was like, wow, he's amazing. But I felt very strongly he's connecting with the conscious collective memory of the dead. And then I refer back to times when I've been to mediums and I'm like, okay, they never actually told me anything that I did not know 
um, or, you know, about, about that family member, it was like, they brought a memory, which is beautiful, but I was like, okay, if they were connecting to my grandparents, let's say, um, there would have been things that they would have, would have been able to tell me that I did not know yet. And that never happened. So, um, people get like very, I mean, he has has such a fan base and I am a fan too. I mean, he does amazing work. It helps a lot of people, but people get very reactive when I mention this question, because I'm like, I'm just curious. I just want to know because, um, either way, what he's doing, it does, I guess it doesn't matter, but you know, I would like to know (laughs) one way or the other. So, Yeah. yeah. Um, where are we at with the legalization of psychedelics? And I know it's different for every state, but I mean, more, more theoretically from your perspective, and do you see the laws really changing anytime soon? And what can people then also do to help decriminalize this process and to help, um, you know, in their local legislation? Getting involved in your local legislation and seeing where you're at in your city, in your state, um, and what you can do to help move that there is like decrim nature um, set up in many major cities. Um, we have one here in Austin. There's, you know, it's in Oakland, it's in Santa Cruz, uh, DC. I think we, I mean, I know there's one in Illinois. There's, you know, every state, if you don't have one in your state, like, and you really feel passionate about this, like look into that and you can create a decrim nature group that meets and you can all work together collectively to help move the needle. Um, Oregon is, is legal statewide. And then we have decriminalization in certain cities, you know, like Oakland and Santa Cruz and in Denver. And then there's different reform policies. Like if um, you get caught with a, a you know, caught, I guess I hate to use that word with a certain amount that like you can, you know, not have legal action if you're under X amount of whatever substance that that um, legislature deems legal or not legal. Um, So it's different. I I forgot the website I shared with you because I was like, I want to. Um, let me see. I referred to it because I have it. I just found it. And I was like, oh, this is a helpful website. You can look up state by state and then it tells you where you guys are or individually with what, um, like bills are being passed, where those are in the, in the flow of, um, getting to now I can't find it. It's okay. Yeah. But, um, exit it to you. It is um, psychedelicalpha.com. Yeah, it's, so, a legal, it's a psychedelic legalization and decrim tracker. I just found it. I was like, oh, this is really helpful. Yeah, very yeah. helpful. I bookmarked it. So I try to stay up on it, but there's a, things always changing. And um, Oregon is setting the stage and pace for everything that we will, that every state and city will follow. Um, there's a lot going on there, and there's a lot of amazing people working on who can facilitate how they're going to facilitate the training and education that they need, the curriculum. That's wonderful. There's added curriculum to like, there's all these training programs that are popping up. And I I believe it'll either be like 40 to 60% of, of that curriculum of whatever um, training you're going through, which is also things to like pay attention to. So go and look in Oregon and see what they're going to be requiring. And then Oregon's going to require another like 40 or 60% of curriculum that they are creating to come up with through the training so that across the board, that'll be like a standardized um, 
education plot, like way that we. Yeah. And lots of people are creating entheogenic churches like myself um, as well. And I wanted to ask you, um, how much do, I mean, how much of an impact does it have if you carry um, the card, you know, from, from one of the churches um, that says you're able to carry this medicine? Does that protect you really or no? I mean, I would think so. I'm not. Um, this is not my wheelhouse. Uh, I, I'm not going to comment on that. I, yeah, no I don't know. I like say yes, but, and it's yes. And because I do know people that have formulated churches that have, there's other like loopholes and there's some stickier things around that. And it's not just like the streamlined clear cut. You need a lot of different layers of protection. Um, and there's, yeah. And you, it just depends. Do your um, due diligence. Yeah. <laughs> do your due diligence and yeah. please find good legal, um, you know, counsel around that. And there are individuals that are very good at getting churches. I had him on my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> George. Lake yeah. So um, please. Yeah. Reach yeah. out and support around that. Absolutely. Um, and then to give this a very well-rounded perspective, what are the limitations of psychedelics and what's the, the biggest concern that you have regarding the use of psychedelics? What are the limitations around the use of psychedelics? Yeah. Like what, because I want to give a full, you know, a full rounded perspective of not just all the benefits, but like what, you know, what are the limitations and what should people be aware of? Um depending on what previous medical history, um, depending on what molecule you want to work with, given your history, whether it's a, you know, mental health or physiological, I'm not going to recommend somebody with like a a heavy cardiac history or recent cardiac history. I should say that like go and sit with a large dose of MDMA. Right. And, you know, Ibogaine, same thing. They, you, you have cardiac monitors years. There's certain people can work with certain medicines and some doesn't mean that that completely excludes everyone with these histories, but to really know your background and know what is um, inclusive and not. And then if you do feel that that's something you want to work with, finding the, like having that medical support, that's also in, in tandem with the facilitation of whatever that medicine is. Um, There is different you know, I go back and forth around schizophrenia and bipolar. I also, I think some of it is overdiagnosed. I do think that there are, you know, schizophrenic patients that do need to be on their medications and should not be taken off or that do truly um, swing, you know, manic depressive and need their mood stabilizers and to not come off of it. You know, those are to hopefully those certain people know that about themselves, especially into their adulthood, because, you know, if it's working for them and they're not blunted and they're functioning and if they've come off before and they've had like disastrous, like, you know, things happen in their life because of it, we don't really want to rock the boat in that standpoint. And we don't have all of the support yet to manage all of these diagnoses. Um, but that's I love a- the way the indigenous handle um, schizophrenia, though. They bring them into the community and like show them these amazing gifts that they have. They're embraced and they're not like shunned for it and they don't lock them away somewhere. They bring them in and they teach them how to use their gifts. And then, you know, it, it's it's quite amazing when you look at some of the stories of um, how they've handled it. And I really think that that's um, quite profound. My boyfriend was... Um, absolutely diagnosed, um, bipolar schizophrenic 
but um, I listened to spirit was telling me and no, it's not. It was just um, his previous um, use with drugs and um, we got him off of everything, you know, through psilocybin and um, with carefully, you know, but um, it, it was, I mean, and he'll, he'll tell you to this day, like it changed his life because his family's like, Oh my gosh, we have our son back, you know? And, um, he, he's completely, um, you know, normal and his, everybody thought his brain was fried, you know? So it's, it's a beautiful thing to be able to bring somebody back from that and to have them, I mean, cause they do the work, but you know, it, it's just a, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So I as well struggle with like, okay, she, you know, should I take, and I, and I leave those things to you. <laughs> yeah, and I also, I put more focus lately to pay attention to the MTHFR gene mutation, which like it's anywhere between 40 to 60% of all adults have this gene mutation, which I've shared it on my Instagram and things. I, I won't get too far into it, but it's a you know how we methylate, but it can also lead to um, more depressive states because of the shifts in serotonin and dopamine. And so these are all things that I would like highly encourage one to take a look at or ask to to take a look at because if they keep medicating and the medications aren't working, there might be a deeper reason than it's not just the mental, it's your physiological makeup and genetics that are causing some of these exacerbations. And so do um, they go get gen- genetic testing to figure that out? Well, homocysteine is one of the labs that you would look at on a normal, which is, should be included in a normal blood panel that you go to on, um, like you annually have your checkup. And if you are insured, then your insurance does cover, they should cover homocysteine with the correct diagnosis. Again, your provider can really help with that. And you can call your insurance company to make sure that's one. They're going to look at that first. And then there's other markers and look at your B vitamins and, um, then, testing, you can find out of pocket labs. That'll do it for 200. Mm-hmm. I forget the name. I will circle back so you can share it. Um, and then it's still around like 200 out of pocket That's in still, yeah. private practice. Again, calling insurance, seeing if there is a diagnosis that correlates, then it should get covered. Again, we have to play that game. Mm-hmm. That's the fun part, but yeah, I highly recommend looking at it. I, I do find it common, especially if someone's been on many different medications and they're on multiple medications and then they're like dealing with symptom management, still something to look at and not everybody looks at it. And it's surprising to me because it's so important. Yeah. Very important. Um, I want to switch gears again and let's talk about ketamine a little bit, because I know it's one of your specialties among many other specialties, but I don't want to put you in that box, but um, you have an immense amount of knowledge around this, um, this medicine and, um, so explain to people for the people that don't know, what are the benefits of ketamine therapy and how is it really transforming the way we understand pain and depression? Uh, so ketamine is our legal psychedelic that we get to use. First line was used and still is used in anesthesia and mm-hmm to anesthetize a patient and also in the field, like if EMS picks up a patient during trauma, not only to like help with pain, but also to help um, calm them down because it does bring this, depending on the dose and how much you're using, you can go very from very small to very high and have different, different benefits at different doses for different things. Um, You know, I just did a 
clubhouse around, I was very cautious, but like microdosing ketamine, but meaning like smaller doses, not microdosing as it, we know it like with psilocybin, but, um, you know, there's certain studies that have gone on, like Dr. Phil Wolfson has studied PMDD, which is very severe PMS that you can, these women will take smaller doses, like 25 milligrams of ketamine. They, you can get it orally. They can also get nasal spray to treat, um, their symptoms before cycle start and having less, um, you know, severe depression, psychosis. Well, I don't want to say psychosis, but when a woman's going through that, they yeah, feel yeah. like, yeah, they feel like they're having psychosis. Um, and then also for pain management, like different doses lo- at a lower space. And I find also super beneficial if we haven't seen it a lot, but I do know like some practices will incorporate acupuncture and um, because you're bringing in that awareness to body and you're still at a lower dose, able to navigate like where um, energy is being held. Mm-hmm. Same with, you know, somatic body work. I really like to see that in more practices. I do think that would be phenomenal. Coming. Oh my it's coming. Um, I, we just haven't all caught on and building more of a conscious clinic there. And I do think there are some clinic models that are coming out that are really trying to be supportive and doing proper prep and integration and providing that um, therapeutic model for the patient or client that's going through it. That said, there are some that are not doing that and that can get, I always say, if you're going to look in your area and they, you only have a limited amount of choices. And most of the time they're either intravenous or intramuscular delivery of ketamine ask what, you know, who's sitting, is there anyone sitting with you? Who's monitoring you? Do you have any prep integration? Is there any therapy involved? And then if you're already working with a therapist and these clinics don't provide that for you, you can, you know, pair your therapy therapy up with like pre and post session. If you tell your therapist what you're doing. And again, that therapist might not be, um, ketamine assisted trained, but there's still a therapist. So like if things come up, they're still able to process it with you. So please like have conversations that, and don't go home and just like sit with yourself and not share because you think someone doesn't understand. Um, because I've heard many stories where some of these clinics are, delivering ketamine, sometimes very high doses. Um, there's no communication after and sent home in an Uber and they go home to their everyday life. And they're like, well, what was that? You know, um, sometimes they get relief for depression or, you know, but not the longer term relief and that you get when you integrate what your, what sessions I do think ketamine is very beneficial, for certain people, certain windows of time, certain things. What I'd like to see is more maintenance and de- like development of a maintenance program after. I really value utilizing microdosing psilocybin protocols after ketamine therapy. Um, but I can't say that above ground. I mean, I can say it. I'm saying it. I can't say it. <laughs> I'm saying it. Um, I'm like, um, I, you know, it's just like above ground, below ground. I'm like, can we just like practice safely with individuals? And and as long as we know that we are caring for them at the utmost, like highest standard of care, safety, respect, ethics, like let us do what we need to do. And do you think there's any, at any point, will um, insurance cover ketamine? Because um, yeah, it precludes some people from, okay. They do cover for chronic pain, not every insurance, but I do know there is coverage for chronic pain. Um, I don't know where we're at as far as getting coverage for, um, you know, major depressive disorder. Um, 
again, there's like ways to code and ways around things, which like when I was working in private practice, I always felt a little bit like Robin Hood because I'd have to go up to bat with these insurance companies to get certain medications and like, or certain tests that I know that this person needed. And sometimes I had to alter the story a bit so that this person can get what they needed and get it covered. So I always hope that other um, practitioners and providers will also, you know, seat wave pro versus like wave con versus pro of the situation and then go accordingly. Um, but again, I push the envelope and like, that's just who I am. So I don't know if everybody does that, but like, trust me, if you have someone that's an advocate for you and they want you to have the best care, they'll help you in whatever way they can time also Jennifer will help I can say that she will help you no matter what the situation is she'll figure out a way to be able to advise you on the best course of options which I love her for that um and kind of lastly I ask all of my guests um the show on the uh, on the show the question so what it is is if you have one sentence that you could tell humanity to sum up like what would your what is your hope for humanity I didn't want to answer that question beforehand because I was like, I'm going to do it off the cuff. What's yeah. my humanity? God, there's so many layers to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just to really be in a, we are a collective consciousness of each other and, and what we share. That being said, depending on where we are, are in our healing journeys and like our processes, sometimes it can be really challenging. You witness someone going through something and maybe you've gone through that before, or you've experienced that, or you don't want to see somebody suffering and understanding that they have to go through their process in whatever way that they need to, so that they can actually transcend and shift and make these big changes because it's those lessons and those experiences that will bring us all up to like the same frequency. Um, So yeah, I just want everyone to get on the same frequency. Uh, me too. And I just wanted to show this card because I pulled a card before we did this. And this is Janosh. Um, he does Arcturian frequency codes and activations. And the card I pulled was purification. And I thought this is so beautiful um, because, and this is the activation, if you look at it, um, is purifying kind of people to the knowledge of what we're bringing to the table here. And this is as pure as it can get. So um I'd invite you to meditate on this and meditate on the things that um, Jennifer said. She's an amazing wealth of knowledge. And I will um, put uh, her contact information in the show notes um, so you can get in touch with her. And please do. Um, she will. She's amazing. And she'll listen to what you have to say. And um, she's she's very kind. And like I said, she's a very dear friend of mine. So, yeah, I really thank you. I'm so grateful for you. You're a goddess and you're amazing. Yeah. Thanks so much. All right.